Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. I'm your host, Dr. Alan. While many multifamily investors shy away from Section 8 housing, our guest embraces the opportunities hid in this asset class. Tom Cruz is a 33-year-old real estate investor out of Wilmington, North Carolina. After graduating from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, Tom started wholesaling real estate and then graduated to buying single-family and small multifamily properties. So, Tom, before we get into real estate, share a memorable experience from your formative years that helped you to be the person you are today. Yeah, I think that would probably be something that was more, you know, entrepreneurship driven. I mean, it's it seems very small at the time, but now looking back at it, you know, it really has kind of pushed me in that direction. And it was in middle school. I must have been like maybe 12 or 13 at the time. And I kind of learned about Pokemon cards. I was really into Pokemon cards at the time. And I had gotten a really rare card. And when I was at my after school program at the YMCA, I had some kid offer me $200 for it, which now adjusted for inflation. It's probably a thousand bucks today. But, anyways, back then to me at 13, then you might as well, you know, give me $10,000. I sold the card. Yeah, it was like a bunch of small bills, like ones, five, and tens. And like you put together. And I'll never forget the moment where I jumped in my mom's Toyota Camry after the YMCA and I put all this money out. And she was like thinking I was selling drugs at the YMCA. <laughs> and that was really, that was my first transaction, like that I can legitimately remember and mark down. And I was like, man. You know, I took something that I bought with my own money for five bucks and I flipped it for 200 overnight simply because, you know, I had something that somebody else wanted. They valued it. And that was just a very basic, you know, learning lesson in, in entrepreneurship. And then from that point on, I sold everything from candy to paintball guns to anything else that I was interested in at the time. And then eventually, you know, obviously in college, I got into real estate and yeah, the rest was history. So I think at some level that kind of helped me guide my way, at least into not wanting to work for anybody and. I saw the that light bulb moment as far as what's possible, you know, when you kind of go a different route. Well, that's interesting. It's always interesting to get a picture of how it is that people actually did become entrepreneurs. Because yeah. it is an unusual path. Not many people follow that path. Right. Tell us, you started out actually just a graduate from college and you started right. wholesaling. Well, first of all, what is wholesaling? Yeah. Wholesaling is essentially when you find a property that's undervalued, you put it under contract, and then you find maybe a flipper or an investor that's interested in buying that contract from you. So you're essentially being the middleman between the seller of the property and the buyer. And you never own the property. You never close on it in your name. And you're it's essentially arbitrage. So I would put a property under contract for 70000 I would find an investor that wants it to, to flip the house and he might make you know some money down the, further down the road. So I would say, Hey, look, man, I'll flip this contract to you for $75,000. So the buyer pays $75,000. The closing attorney gives the $70,000 to the seller that was agreed on. And then I you know, keep the $5,000 in very simple terms. There's obviously fees and closing costs. But yeah, I would keep the $5,000 as the closing fee. So I did that to get started to be able to fund the down payments on my rental units, then eventually subsequently get into Section 8. So is that the story of how it is that new investors can get started? Or are there other ways and means for investors to get into the game? 
everyone has different starting points. I actually do section eight coaching. So I talk to, you know, students all the time. Some of them are vice presidents of product of Facebook and they make 600 grand a year. So they can get into real estate super fast. You know, some people are at an entry level $40,000 a year job. So it really depends on where you're starting off capital wise and, and then credit wise and liquidity and net worth wise. If you're starting very low, then yeah, wholesaling is a great way to start. You only need maybe three, 500 bucks to put a property under contract, you know, it's 60 to $70,000. And then you spend time finding a buyer for it. And right now in this market, if you find any deal that has potential equity in it, you're going to flip it. You know, there's no way around it. You're going to make money on it because inventory is so low. Everybody's looking to buy constantly. So, you know, grab it, put it in a contract, throw it on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace and, you know, make five or seven grand. And that's what I did, you know, early on. I knew that I needed fifteen to sixteen thousand dollars per month to buy one rental. So I was buying seventy, eighty thousand dollars a door at the time, twenty percent down, you know, comes out around that. And yeah, that's how I got started. Well, trends that real estate professionals need to follow, there's all kinds of different ones, but what are the major trends that we need to look at and follow? As far as like a strategy or just in general market trends that that I'm seeing? In general, the market trends that we need to look out for. For me, I'm seeing obviously inventory staying low, interest rates relatively still low. So I'm not seeing, you know, prices crashing down anytime soon. I don't think there's going to be another explosive 08 event, unfortunately. You know, I've in 09, I was there looking at 08, like, oh my God. So I'll never forget in 2014, 2015, 16, when I was buying houses and I would see in the tax records, you know, when you buy a house, it shows, you know, what the previous guy paid for it. And here he is in 09 paying 30 grand for a house that I'm now paying 80 grand for. It's like, man, I really want another, you know, chance like that. So, but I don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime. But as far as trends, I would say we obviously saw what happened with Zillow and, you know, paying too much for too many properties and being unable to flip them. So I'm, I've never been a big fan of flipping or the birth strategy. I'm much more buy and hold. I just think that it's much more predictable, especially with Section 8. I would get on that buy and hold trend. It's worked for so many investors over the years. It's proven. It's predictable. And the possibility for new investors to lose is very low. You specialize in Section 8. and Correct. So tell us why it is you specialize in Section 8. Well, there's a million reasons. One, the rent is guaranteed. If anyone's ever rented a property before... With any tenant, you'll see that majority of the time is spent, you know, either chasing that tenant for the rent on the first of the month because it's not guaranteed with a regular, you know, market rate tenant. So that's the nicest part. That whole part, that whole hurdle goes away when you deal with Section Eight. They direct deposit the majority of the income into your account. The remaining balance you can grab from the tenant. We just do a debit card transaction that will just charge them and, and, and charge the remaining balance. We get higher paid rents. Section Eight has to provide higher rents for their landlords in order to incentivize them to, to take it over a market rate tenant. So we're getting thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a month on a sixty thousand dollars unit. Whereas traditionally, if you buy a sixty thousand dollars unit, you're not going to find anyone to pay thirteen and fourteen hundred dollars a month for off the street market rate. So that's another reason it's future proof. It's market proof. In 2020, during a massive global pandemic, we had our best year ever. My units remain occupied because tenants obviously aren't moving to go anywhere else. And where all my other friends had, you know, units that were still occupied, but all the tenants were unemployed now, or you know, got laid off for whatever the reason. They had to, you know, figure out how they're going to pay their their debt service every month to the bank. Whereas I, I was buying units. I was like, oh man, you know, like anyone else looking to sell, I'm, I'm buying as much as possible because I already had all my rent subsidized. So I never missed a debt service payment. I never did forbearance. I never had to, you know, ask for any leniency from the bank. And they were super happy, which just builds goodwill with them when I go back and ask for another three, four, five million dollar loan. Well, what are the downsides uh, to Section Eight? 
The only thing that's different from Section 8 to a regular tenant is going to be inspections. And in reality, if you don't stay on top of it, it can trip you up. Because for example, if you don't inspect the property all year, or you're a lazy landlord, and then you have your annual inspection, and then you have a laundry list of things to fix, and then you can't afford it, or you don't want to, but they're going to stop the rent. And then you're going to be dealing with that eviction. So that's really the only scenario where it becomes a problem is if you're a slumlord. If you don't take care of the property, if you don't maintain the property, you're going to run into issues. And that's really the only downside. Well, what is it about Section 8 that so many people actually run from uh, that particular facet of the population? It's going to be the myth that the Section 8 tenants are going to destroy your units. And in reality, it's it's just that. It's a myth. If you have two tenants, it, it, Section 8 is a payment method, right? So like, if you're a regular tenant, you're paying with cash or a credit card or a certified check. Section 8 is just using Uncle Sam's wallet. That's really the only difference between a regular tenant and a Section 8 tenant. So if you go back down to that common denominator, both tenants, if you don't screen them, you're going to have problems because you don't know where they're coming from. So it's not the fact that there's Section 8 that makes them a problem. This is what happens. People think that since the rent is guaranteed, that the tenant quality is guaranteed, which is not the case. So I talk to landlords all the time that were you know, burned by Section 8. And the first thing I'll say is like, hey, show me the background check of this person that burned you. Oh, we re- never ran a background check because you know the direct deposit income was guaranteed. We didn't think we had to worry about it. Well, I guarantee you they probably have at least two or three drug convictions. I guarantee you that they have a credit score of like 501. And I guarantee you they owe every single creditor on the face of this planet. And you let them into your house without checking. And they're like, well, yeah, that probably was the case. I was like, no, I guarantee you they had also at least one eviction on there too, because they're a professional tenant. So it's not Section 8 that makes a tenant bad. It's lazy landlords that don't check. So what kind of backgrounds do you run on your Section 8? For everybody, we do um, very best screening. So we're checking credit, we're checking background, we're checking eviction history, we're checking landlord ref- verification, and we take it a step further. And because a lot of times they'll try to BS, you know, have their friend call, we'll check address and we'll also check name and make sure the phone number they give to the landlord matches to the address on public record. And then we also check employment references, check pay stubs, contact people at the actual location to confirm those pay stubs are valid and real. And then we also do home visits. I'll have my property manager go to where they're living currently and see how they're living. So it's in depth. I mean, right now we have almost no turnover because Section 8 tenants stay in the units a lot longer. And then once they do, we know that the probability of them leaving a good, you know, in shape unit is, is very high because we did all the work on the front end. Well, sounds like an excellent process. We'll be right back after a brief announcement. Are you a busy professional, passionate about the work of your calling, yet realize that even though you love what you are doing, you're exchanging your time for money? You know that if you were to lose the ability to exchange time for money, your financial well-being will be in jeopardy. If you can relate, I have great news. Steve Tucker Capital is an investment company designed for professionals to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Remove the anxiety of an uncertain financial future and go to steedtucker.com. Get your free one-page 10-step guide to passive real estate investing. Take us through the strategy, actually. You started with wholesaling. Correct. Uh, then you started getting your own units. Correct. Talk to us about that process of moving from wholesaling to purchasing your own properties. And how have you gone about not just purchasing those first units, but how have you scaled your business? Yeah, that's a good question. 
So I had a goal for myself that I wanted to buy one unit per month when I got started. Once I bought my first condo, I used an FHA loan, 3%. I used Obama's you know, $8,000 tax credit back in the time. And I was able to get my first unit, lived in there for a year. And then I bought a big dog, wasn't allowed in the, in the complex that I was living in. So it forced me to buy a single family unit. So I couldn't sell my condo, which I really wanted to, but I was upside down equity wise in the market the way it was and my limited equity on the down payment. So I was just in bad shape. So I rented it out. And that's kind of where I had that aha moment. Like I was making $500 a month making rent on this unit and $500 over my mortgage. So I was making, you know, netting 500 and I was managing it myself to really nice, you know, couple that, that I had leased the unit to. And I was like, wow, this is super easy. Let me keep buying more. So from that point on, I said like, Hey, I need $16,000 this month. So I wholesale got the deals, wholesale got the deals. I was working with local community banks, credit unions, anybody that would lend to me. I was going knocking on their door asking for a loan. From that point on, I did that for about a year, got about I think eight or nine units. At that point, it was unstoppable because I was able to reinvest all that cash flow. I was making minimum $500 per unit times eight. I was netting $4,000 per month on this pretty small portfolio of condos that were, you know, that I kind of cobbled together through multiple banks. And um, eventually I maxed out at my 10 unit limit through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I was forced to go into the portfolio and commercial world. So I started talking to other credit unions that held their paper in-house, to other mortgage brokers that were open to, to lending, and commercial loans. I got into the commercial world and started doing 10-year balloons, 5-year balloons, started doing some type of some type of like guidance line, credit lines that, that they would allow me to do whenever they would give me that, when they would have the risk tolerance for me. So at the time, I was doing a 25, 26. I still had limited credit. And I only had 5, 6, 7 units at a time. So it's not like I had... This huge balance sheet and this huge, you know, I was able to show a, a ton of net worth to be able to justify continue getting a ton of loans. That's why I eventually started getting into other people's money. At this point, I had a track record that was long enough where I could go to an investor and say, Hey, look, are you interested in investing with me? I have this amount of units. You know, I'm looking for a hundred thousand dollars. Cool. You know, local investor threw a hundred thousand dollars in. We bought another six units. He liked the way that it went. He was getting his return. You know, we did another 250,000. So that way is kind of how I started snowballing that and being able to continue to add more properties to my portfolio. And then eventually I started doing cash out refis. Now a year has gone by, equity has gone by, state rent stabilization has occurred, and I'm able to start pulling money out to pay back my investors, buy them out, and keep the units to myself. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I started to scale. Can you give us the approximate time frame from the point where you started out and to that point where you were able to start refinancing and uh, buying out the investors? Yeah, I mean, I would say between 12 and 18 months for the most part. Some of them had seasoning periods, some of them were commercial and they didn't care. So for the most part, it was all less than this is all less than two years as far as being able to kind of take off. And then after my third year, I was looking at much bigger portfolios. I have one, I don't have to include the link, where I bought 92 units for $6.2 million. And then two years later, we stabilized it. And I, me and my partner sold actually that one for, I think, $10.2 So we were able to, to realize a pretty big gain on that. So that all kind of comes into play is... And that's something that I would have done different sooner, which I always get asked this question is like, you know, if I were to start all over again, what would I do? I would stop focusing on me providing the down payment funds and kind of do it one by one, which is very slow and time consuming. And I mean, it's great because I built all these lending relationships, but at the same time, I could have had 500 units in probably five or six years instead of eight or nine years had I started talking to higher net worth individuals first. After I had maybe five or 10 units, 
I could have gone to them and say, Hey, look, I'm trying to get to a thousand units. Let me show you kind of what I've already done. And then I think it would have, um, it would have at least kind of set the seed for a lot of them to then start getting money. Because when you realize in real estate, there's so much money out there. There's so many people sitting on two, three, four, five million dollars that don't know what to do with it. And all it takes is showing them a good plan. And real estate's inherently a good investment. And it's something that they can go put a lien on. So the risk is very low. So selling somebody on a real estate investment is very easy. I hear that a lot of times from a lot of investors who say, I wished I had started using other people's money long before I did. And that I had had started actually essentially thinking bigger long before I actually did. It seems like we all have those limitations. We set ourselves up for limiting ourselves because we don't see ourselves as big as what we actually can be. Exactly. Just a, a human fallacy there. So what is the biggest takeaway that you can share with our investors from your investment experiences? I would say for new investors, mostly is, is who I'm talking to. We can get more into detail as far as who your general audience is, if they're beginners or more advanced or multifamily and already have units. But I'm finding in my coaching with people that haven't started, their biggest thing is analysis paralysis. They get so tied up in looking at ROI and cap rates and cash on cash return and pro formas and profit loss and balance sheet and all these financials. I was like, man, it's a $60,000 house. You don't need to do all this. Look at it. Do the due diligence. Does it cash flow? Yes or no. Buy the unit and then get started. Fortunately, I never got stuck in the weeds like that. I just looked at it and I was like, hey, what's the worst case scenario if I buy a second second unit and I can't rent it? Okay, it's 400 bucks a month. It's not going to you know, end me financially if I can't cover the mortgage for 30 days while I wait for a good tenant to cover it. So I would say just do it. Um, you know, I, I hate for it to sound cliche, but once you get that first rent check, once you understand the power of passive income and being able to manage your own properties, it's addicting. And then by the, before you know it, you'll be at your second or third unit. And that's how I did it. A lot of the units that I bought, I put under contract before I even had the cash available to close. I would just put it under because I liked it. It was a good investment. And then I figured it out later. Wholesale, credit card advances. You know, uh, reinvesting cash from other ones, trying to do a cash out refi to get that cash to close on this one at the same time. I just got creative. And once you're under the gun, crazy things start to happen, you know? Yeah. Well, Tom, how can our viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'm pretty big on social media. Instagram and TikTok are the two biggest ones that I'm active on. So T Cruz NC, that's T's and Tom Cruz, C R U Z N C, like North Carolina. And then you guys can also go to section eight formula.com section the number eight formula.com i have a five thousand dollar coaching and section eight course that i help people get started with section eight understand all the pitfalls learn how to buy find and finance and close on these units well great well tom have one last question what was one of the greatest or most difficult uh, setbacks in your life how did you come through that time and what was the greatest lesson you learned from that it was actually probably a real estate deal that went wrong I, uh, about halfway through this journey, I started getting too, too confident and got cocky and thought that everything I touched turned to gold. And that is very much not the case. And me and a partner went into deal. He trusted me with a quarter million dollars to put down on this million dollar, I think it was like a 15 unit portfolio. It was like three triplexes and a couple of duplexes and some single families mixed in. And I just bought it and didn't do the due diligence on it. When we closed on it, the day we closed on it, we got hit with all sorts of code enforcement notices. We got hit with all sorts of you know vacancies that weren't expected. And 
it turned really ugly. I mean, we probably had $100,000 in repairs to do just to bring it up to code to avoid all the fees and fines and hearings that were going to about to hit us. And of course, it was never disclosed to us. You know, I guess it's not material facts, so they didn't bother to tell us because they didn't care. And fortunately, my investor, super cool. He understood, you know, that sometimes due diligence doesn't pick up on all that. I went through all the units myself. They were all, they're rough, but it's what you expect at that price point. And we were, we we're prepared to pay to, to renovate them, but not as to the level that, I mean, they're talking about like asbestos in the insulation. They're talking about, you know, um, lead based paint on the exterior. They wanted all of it scraped and pulled. We really found rot in the, in the decking on the roof, had to pull a bunch of roofs. So. What we ended up doing is just doing all the repairs and then just selling it. And we pretty much got out even, which was very lucky. It could have easily gone very south and put me in a really bad, you know, it would have sent me back a couple of years if I had to, you know, come out of pocket at that point to be able to help pay him for it. So that was the biggest lesson real estate and professionally was to make sure that you don't get too confident in what you're doing just because it's working really well at the beginning, because at any point it can all come crashing down if you make one wrong move. So. Just take it slow, you know, where you can. Don't get so caught up in scaling so fast that all you look at is that unit count. But yeah, I would say that that would be the the biggest thing is just to be more focused and diligent, regardless of you know how how much you scaled already. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, those hard knocks are hard to take, but oftentimes excellent, excellent lessons to learn from. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. Been a yeah. pleasure getting to know you, and thank you thank for you. sharing your experiences. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steed Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steed Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steed Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at steedtalker.com.